0: Good morning church one person's awake. everybody else is visiting and that's, oh, the nerve of people to fellowship at church when I first got saved, I grew up Roman Catholic and uh, the Sunday after I got saved, I got saved on a I think a Saturday night or Friday night i I forget but A friend took me to a Baptist church the next week and put me right in the front pew, right where Allie is. And I was looking for the kneelers. There were no kneelers in the pews. I'm like, what kind of church is this? And then I thought, everybody is talking. And I'm like, shh, the priest is going to come in soon. It was a foreign experience being in a church like that. But I'm so thankful that the Word of God was preached and taught there. And that w- I still think we should have kneelers, but that's, that's something for the elders to discuss. But I've been at churches where we've knelt, and you just turn around in the pew and face backwards and kneel, which is another way to do it. But I have no idea. Oh, I know why I got onto that story. It was so, so quiet. My mind, my mind, yeah. Thanks for your patience. Um, To get through the announcements, there is no children's choir this week. It's going to start up next week in the cottage. And ladies' Bible study starts tomorrow in the cottage. And I think we have a birthday girl in the back. Willa, happy birthday. You're special to us here. And those are all the announcements. You can look in the bulletin for others.
1: Revelation 19 says, and on his head were many crowns. So let's stand and take our hymn books and let's sing to the King of Kings this morning. Number 304, crown him with many crowns.
2: of reading the life of Christ with you, Matthew chapter 11, and I normally don't mention the where to find it in your pew Bible, but I looked it up, it's 816 if you need help. And the reason we mention the pew Bible now and our reading later, which will be from Psalms, so that you can actually open the Bible and look and you can read it with the same version that I'll be reading from, which is the ESV. Matthew chapter 11 Uh, We're looking at the life of Christ in this reading here. And so think back of this glorious one, Jesus Christ, from the Gospel of Matthew. We begin in verse 11 and verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison speaking about John the Baptist, the deeds of Christ, he sent word by the disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or or should we look for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What do you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly you say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. The violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more tolerable, more bearable, on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you be brought down to Hades? For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, My burden is light. Let us pray. Father, we come to you now praising your name for who you are, for all that you have done, and all that you have promised, which will surely be done. I pray that you'll give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to respond. And though the wise might reject in their own wisdom, you have granted to us a wisdom that excels them all, for we have seen the glory of Jesus Christ. To that end, we, we must thank you for that divine revelation that in our hearts we respond in great faith and have a desire to to please none but you. I pray for myself, I pray for your people. Indeed, that would be characteristic of who we are. May we truly grow in grace and knowledge of who you are. And with that deep understanding, might it overflow into the character and into the conduct and in every circumstance that we might find ourselves in. Give us the strength through the power of the Spirit to indeed put to death the deeds of the flesh and may the fruit of the Spirit flourish in our life. I pray that we might have a supernatural and divine love, the love of Christ for one another, the joy that is in Christ, the peace that he has granted, a peace that... surpasses any earthly understanding Father I pray that indeed we would all come we are heavy laden and we need rest in you and you alone we're thankful that you sent your son to live to die to rise again and to ascend and is now interceding for our very souls this burden is light. And I pray that, Father, that we would cast all our cares on you and sense that satisfaction increasingly in you and you alone. May you be magnified in every aspect of what we do. May our worship of you today, the singing of our hearts, the reading of your word, the proclamation, and the prayers. May all of it flow to you as something that is pleasurable in your sight. And may it grant us great joy as well. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
1: Well, let's stand together again and turn to number 587 in our hymn books. Take time to be holy. Leviticus 27. Consecrate yourselves and be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Amen. i yeah. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. We'll sing the first and the last verses of this, and then notice at the bottom, the DC, that's our refrain, we'll sing that after every verse. So 436, where he leads me, first and last.
3: Happy new Year, brothers and sisters. Amen. I like how uncomplicated Happy New Year is because you don't have the Happy Holidays, Merry Christmas thing. My boss even brought up uh, Kwanzaa because it's a public school, I guess. It's, uh, with the New Year, I always simply encourage to uh, go deeper in the Word and wider with the Word, wider with a systematic coverage of going through what's been revealed to us and deeper with memorization, prayer, study, exegetical sermons, etc. Uh, today's a scriptural reading will be Psalm 145, as found on page 524 of the Pew Bibles. Now there's a lot of aspects that uh, in any good psalm that you could focus on, but after this state of the church and all the kids here, I think many of us are passionate about verse 4, that uh, one generation shall commend your works to another, yes. and that's uh, a, one of the big uh, passions that we have in our body of Christ right now. Um, our kids are naturally already worshippers. Uh, uh, that's why there's so much wonder and they want to show you the things that are wondrous to them. Uh, Chesterton wrote about why the genre of fantasy is compelling because for adults, like open up a door and there's a dragon behind the door and we're amazed. But with kids, they open up a door, and they're already amazed because there's a door. And and that fantasy genre like tries to give you that nostalgia for childhood when everything was full of wonder. I know in our house, we might hear like, oh, I don't want bedtime because then I'll be bored. Don't go to work because then I'll be bored. Uh, but that's uh, because uh, you don't want to be bored, uh, kids, because God made you to worship a wonderful and glorious and amazing God. In verse 3 before that, his greatness is unsearchable. Some translations unfathomable. That means the greatness of God is so deep it goes on forever. That so you were made to worship this God. Uh, and our kids will worship this God or idols, and that's what we do when we commend one generation to another of his great works. You now the one corner of YouTube that gets tens of millions of views on a video is take toys out of a box and watch them play with it. Oh, I want that toy. It's, uh, even, if, uh, even if we don't have like, a Buddha statue like at the Chinese buffet, there's always these idols in our heart and we could see it from day one. So we'll pray for our kids. That prayer we just had from Matthew 11, that, uh, that God would let these little ones uh, see the goodness of God in the face of Christ. Psalm 45, uh, ESV title, Great is the Lord, a song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the Glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would uh, be a generation that commends your greatness and your mighty deeds and your salvation, wise plan of salvation to the next generation and also to the ends of the earth. Uh, we pray that you would do what you promised and be with your church and grow your church. And bless us as we uh, give in the offering and continue to worship you today, O God. So we ask in the name of Christ. Amen.
1: Us stand once more and take our hymn books and turn to number four hundred and fifty-seven. Psalm forty-six ten says, Be still and know that I am God. We'll sing all three verses. The last verse we'll sing on.
2: pray that you put your trust in Jesus Christ our Lord. He is indeed our great high priest, which we'll return today to the letter to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5. New chapter, Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to talk about the solidarity with our great high priest. And you'll see it's connected to the previous section, and it is indeed this great high priest making mediation between God and man that allows us then to come confidently before him and particularly in communion with him in prayer. <coughs> Our focus this morning is to look at Jesus Christ. In a sermon in 1888 on John 16, verse 14, and following, which the text reads, speaking of Christ, sending the Holy Spirit, he would say, he will glorify me, that is the Holy Spirit will glorify Jesus Christ, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All the Father has is mine, and therefore I said, what, he will take it, what is mine and he will declare, declare it unto you. Charles Spurgeon, in 1888, preached this sermon calling people to learn and look to Jesus Christ. And he noted here how that will be accomplished based on John 16. And that it is indeed the Holy Spirit who would make that known. And I'll quote him in his sermon. He says, observe, and he calls it the Holy Ghost. That's how they would talk about the Holy Spirit at that time (coughs) in the 1800s. The Holy Ghost glorifies Christ by showing to us the things of Christ. It is a great marvel that there should be any glory given to Christ by showing him to such poor creatures as we are. (laughs) Get away with words, didn't he? What? To make us see Christ. Does that glorify him? For our weak eyes to behold him, for our trembling hearts to know him and to, to love him, does that glorify him, he questions? It is even so. For the Holy Ghost chooses this as his principal way of glorifying the Lord Jesus. He takes of the things of Christ, not to show them to angels, not to write them in letters of fire across the brow of night, but to show them unto us within the little temple of a sanctified heart. Christ is praised, not so much by what we do or think, but what we see. This puts great value upon meditation, upon study of God's word. Upon silent thought, under the teaching of the Holy Spirit. For Jesus says, He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and show it unto you. Beloved, that is the trajectory and the objective of this preacher of Hebrews, is to point out the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Now, I know there are a lot of things that you must do and that you're responsible for and that, well, quite frankly, can be quite distracting from day to day. But as Jesus told Martha, 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 you're worried and upset about many things. But there's one thing that you should focus on, and he pointed to himself, it is me. Her sister Mary had chosen that which is better. Look to Christ. And this is what the preacher of Hebrews is is calling our focus on. Whatever your circumstance, whatever your situation, whatever your responsibilities, your duties, your distraction, your interests in this hour, look to Christ. And through the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, may you see the glory of Christ. That's our prayer And that's the trajectory of this text. In this letter to the Hebrews, this preacher goes on to talk about this one Jesus. I know we know who he is, but we must be reminded of him. And we must reflect on him time and time again. Remember how he opened the opening couple of chapters. He begins by saying, Jesus Christ is greater than all prophets that came before. He's speaking to a a Jewish audience who would have great respect for the prophets. And beyond that, they have even greater respect for the angels who who brought them the law. And he says, Christ is greater than all of the angels. And then he gets into chapter three and, and four, and he demonstrates that Jesus is greater than Moses. It would have been a big statement to them. And and beyond that, the one who followed, Moses, Joshua, greater than all that has come before. And now in chapter 5 and then all the way through to chapter 10, there's this big focus on Jesus being greater than Aaron and the whole Levitical priesthood. And it will culminate into showing why Jesus is better than the old covenant. He is the new covenant. It's a call here to put our focus and attention on Jesus Christ. He must have the preeminence in our thoughts and in our affections. Paul prayed concerning Jesus, and you can find in Philippians 3, I'll, I'll read it here a bit, that I, I, he said, I, I, that I may know him, speaking of Jesus, and... The power of his resurrection. This is a call to a personal connection with Jesus Christ. And that desire, that prayer, that I may know him, which is going to be understood through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, it is that knowledge of Christ, that intimate relationship with Christ, that is going to help Paul in his ministry, which we're very aware of. And he would say later on that that enables me to triumph. Even in the midst of great suffering. Knowing Christ, he would say in chapter 4 of Philippians. Seeing the glory of Christ allows him to be content in whatever circumstance he might find himself in. I'll read it for you. Philippians 4, 5 through 7. He says, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. That's where his focus is. He can see Christ. And so based on that, he would say, don't be anxious about anything. Instead, but by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You anxious? Go to him. And we'll learn from the preacher in Hebrews, we can come boldly to that very throne because of that very one Jesus Christ. The Lord is at hand. He's here now. He's present. Don't be anxious then. Go to him in prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known to God. God will hear you. Will the Father hear the Son? Always. Will he hear those that are in the Son and united with him? Yes. And what will be the result then? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus, this is why we need to know more about Christ. Your heart guarded, your 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 mind put in a in a state of contentment, unanxious. Look to Christ. You don't need therapy. You don't need a pill. You need a person. His name is Jesus Christ. So, so, so this is why we're struggling to, to look here and to expand. And my job here in just reading this text and explaining it is to kind of lift it off the page for a moment to get you to think and see it. And by the power of the Spirit, I pray that you would recognize the very glory of Christ and pray along with Spurgeon and those that have preached the word through the ages, come Holy Spirit and take the things of Christ and show them unto us. What we're going to look at specifically in chapter 5 is our solidarity with our great high priest. We think about our union with Christ, but there, the preacher in Hebrews, he wants to emphasize our Christ's mediatorial relationship on your behalf. And by the way, he goes on, like I said, all the way to chapter 10, this is the most extensive section on the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. No other text has this much information on it because it's... Very important. And here this exposition goes on and on. And different aspects of it will be mentioned along the way. Chapter 4 ends with really an introductory in verse 16 where it talks about the, the phrases first used, our great high priest in speaking of Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, if you've got it open, look at verse 1, it says 4, for every priest. Chapter divisions are not inspired. They were put in later. However, they're helpful so that we can find things in the Bible. But they're not inspired. And so, really, this is a break in thought. I I don't think it's a good place to put a division. Because five one this for every priest is a continuation of the content from 4, 14 through 16, which declares that Jesus is our great high priest. The directive in verse 16, what we're called to do then, because Jesus Christ is our great high priest, then go with confidence in prayer. Draw near to him. Here is a personal call to, in solidarity with God through Jesus Christ. But, beloved, you may not feel very confident, really, if you examine your own heart. There may be various reasons in which you feel ashamed of really going before God. You may not sense the solidarity that you have with Jesus as your mediator at all times. So further explanation, then, is given concerning the nature of a priest and particularly both a comparison of what they would have known in, the, uh, in Aaron and that priesthood, and Jesus Christ himself, who is far greater and supreme. Hence, the supremacy of Christ is emphasized. So, because of that, I'm going to back up our reading and begin in verse 14 of chapter 4. Just as an introduction to it. Let's read the text. 4.14 Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God, to offer gifts and sacrifice for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is Obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sin, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, and here's the contrast, he's going to go talk about Christ, contrasting. It's a comparative and then a contrast. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications and loud cries with tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he had suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the glory of Christ. May the things of Christ be known to us in a greater way. May your word accomplish your purpose. I pray, Father, that you would draw everyone near, that they indeed might come boldly before your throne of grace and find help and mercy forevermore. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. In chapter 5, as I mentioned, this admonition to draw near to the throne of grace with great confidence, it precedes our text in chapter 5. This drawing near in verse 16 refers to our communion with God. The drawing near is for both now and forever. God, by his mercy, has redeemed us through Christ so that we can come and receive mercy at any time. There is never a time in which we cannot receive his mercy and receive his grace. Come. You will receive grace upon grace. And when can you get that? Well, if you know this one, this great high priest, you can come anytime. Anytime that you need help, because Jesus fulfills this office as a mediator between God and men. This relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ is, is really unique and superior To anything that preceded, that's part of his point in pointing out Aaron and the Levitical system. But anything also that would follow. It would be inferior. Everything. The Muslims claim that Jesus was followed by a greater prophet by the name of Muhammad. They don't know our great high priest. See why he needs to be known? (laughs) There is no comparison to Jesus Christ. None. The Mormons claim that Joseph Smith was given some sort of special revelation, some special word that superseded Jesus' word. They don't know our great high priest. The Roman Catholics would look to, to Mary as some sort of mediatrix, Go to to the mother and she'll speak to the son for you. They don't know our great high priest. There is one God and one mediator between God and man. It is this man, Christ Jesus. Do you know him? Even those who were established by God, who had the authority to function as mediators... The priests, if you will, in this Levitical system that we're talking about, they were only placeholders to function as a symbol for the substance of the one who would come. It is Jesus Christ. He has come. This audience, for this original audience, should I say, for this sermon failed to see the supremacy in Jesus, of Jesus in all things. They, they were tempted to go back to what they were familiar with in their religious practices and the cultural ideas of their community of that day. So, in this text here, the preacher is going to compare and contrast Jesus with Aaron, the high priest of the Old Covenant. The point is by the power of the Spirit to draw our attention to Jesus Christ because he is above all and no other really compare. The glory of Jesus Christ outshines them all. Now, so it it begins that way in verses 1 through 4. I kind of hinted at it of chapter 5 just giving you the qualifications of a priest. And then if you note verses 5 through 10, it it shows contrast. Jesus not only meets those qualifications, but he exceeds every one. That's That's his whole emphasis, to emphasize the glory of Christ. So I'll just kind of jump back and forth in those two sections, verses 1 through 4, and then 5 through 10, and demonstrate how that is is structured here. Notice the first point here, that it talks about a priest. A priest happens to be one, verse 1, who is chosen from among men. The priest is chosen. He's a chosen man. Note the phrase here, from among men. Now generally that phrase is going to refer to mankind in general, among men. A priest, the qualification was that he had to be a man. It wasn't given to angelic beings, that's the point. It wasn't given to some sort of special creature to be a mediator between God and man. It it was given to man among man. The priest would be someone who would be able to then identify, truly identify with other human beings, to be one of us, if you will, among men. Now, their duties in doing this here, it talks about sacrifices given, and that is certainly a part of it, And part of that sacrifice certainly would be the care of the people as well. But the priests were thought of really primarily what they actually did on a day-to-day basis. Much of their time was spent being both an example for the people as well as teaching the people. I'll give you a text, for example, and I'll read it for you. Leviticus 10, for example... Leviticus ten eight through 11, and I'll go back to this text in a minute. But Leviticus ten eight through 11, and the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, and let them go into the tent of meeting lest you die. This shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between that which is holy and common, between the clean and And the unclean. So the priests, when when they thought of them as a class of people, yeah, they were among men, but yet they were separate in some respects, in that here is great restrictions putting on them to be examples of righteousness. They weren't to even drink any kind of wine or strong drink because they were called to be an exemplar. They were called to be holy, to be set apart, to be distinct. But beyond that, they also practiced not only to be an example, but also to, to teach them that to the people, not just by how they lived and behaved, but also through actual exposition of the word. Verse 11 of chapter 10, And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statues That the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. That's the very word of God. A big part of their responsibility then was to to actually teach them, the people, the word. I'll make one other note too that I ordinarily wouldn't have to, but in these days you do. Um, It says among men. Specifically, it is a male as opposed to a female. All priests were male. This is by God's design. It's by his decree and by his design. Unfortunately, we live in a culture and a society that's trying to diminish those distinctions, but God has established those distinctions for a purpose. Not that... Males are better than females or females are better than males. They have different roles, different responsibility, and different distinguishing characteristics which our culture has virtually lost. This idea of being a priest as a male ultimately was, and it, and it is an exemplar of masculinity, I'm not suggesting that females don't, express this, but males have a responsibility in leadership to demonstrate the holiness of God in their life and to guide people in truth, to be a spiritual leader, if you will. Characteristics of masculinity, the way I would define them, particularly if you want to alliterate them, which I can if I use the word priest, not only to be a priest, but to be a provider and a protector. And often we think about that in a physical way, but the emphasis really, and what's most important, yes, do so in a physical way. Men are stronger, generally speaking, and and they're called to provide and protect, but spiritually. Could you imagine how much filth would be gone if men would step to the plate and not receive It would probably be difficult to change the culture, but maybe we should begin with the church <laughs> and spread out within the family. And who knows, maybe it might explode into the community in how people think about things. The priests were called to be exemplars, not, not just so that they would do this, but so that others would follow and, and have some sort of example to follow and live, and particularly then to, to guide and lead into that which is truth, and that which is truth comes from God's word. Absolutely in a spiritual realm. Christ fulfills this, and, he's, and he exceeds this requirement, Right? The, the priests, and you can read some in the Old Testament even, and maybe even know some who are spiritual leaders, and, but, but they have failings. Christ never failed. He exceeds them all. And specifically, the very person of Christ which demonstrates it, you can find the contrast here, how he fulfills that, but also exceeds that. Look down to verse 5, if you're in Hebrews 5. So for that part, being among men, notice here, so also Christ didn't exalt himself to be made priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, and this is what I want to focus on from Psalm 2-7, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This, is, this quote is repeated earlier from Hebrews 1-5, to which of the angels. Showing the distinction of Christ who has a human nature. He is from among men. He took on a human nature is what he's speaking about. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. What's the today? The incarnation of Christ. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Jesus is a unique son of God. He has taken on full humanity. He is from among men, therefore he qualifies to be a priest, you see, but he exceeds it because he's not a son of Aaron, he's a son of God. In the unique sense, verse 2 of chapter 1, in these last days he has then spoken by his son, who he appointed the heir of all things, by, through whom also he created the world. Aaron didn't create the world, this son did. And yet he was among men. He he had a human flesh. He took on human flesh. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So he has two natures. He has a human nature, begotten of God, a son, today. but But he also has this eternal nature of the Godhead. In fact, demonstrating what he does, he upholds all things by the word of his power. By the way, if you knew Christ, if you knew your great high priest, could you be a little bit anxious, less anxious about the world falling apart? He's holding it all by the word of his power. I think I would go look to him. Maybe it's a call, if you're anxious and scared, go to him in prayer. Commune with him. After making purifications of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's already done with the atonement. So here is a greater among men, if you will. He's the eternal son. He is the incarnate son. God in human flesh. And he is exalted. He is the king of kings. He is then a divine high priest. Yet he has taken on humanity so that he can be among men. Do you remember? It's here, right here in chapter 2. We've already gone through this, but just to highlight it once more, so that you've got your text in front of you, look here about this one who sanctifies those that are sanctified, verse chapter two and verse 11. That is Christ who has set us apart, and made us holy. That's what sanctification means. One source, that is in Christ. And notice the brothers' terminology. He is not, that is Christ, he has not been ashamed to be called, to call them brothers. Now, we don't call Jesus Christ brother, we call him Lord. But he condescends to us, and he calls us brothers, because he is among us. This is a great condescension of Christ in his humility. He says, I will tell your name to my brothers, verse Twelve Again, how Christ communes with his people in the midst of the congregation. Do you get the same idea, idea of being among men? That's what he's saying. He's truly one of us. And yet he is God. I will sing your praise and I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14. Therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise took part of the same things. That's what he's saying. He has the same nature. He is one of us. He qualifies then to be a priest because he took on human flesh. That's what he's saying. And why, why would he do this? Why did he do this? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of the death, that is the devil. And to deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What is? Well, sin is the slavery. It it captures you. you. You don't want to do this. But yet there's something that keeps driving you to this. Well, Christ has defeated and conquered those who are subject to death. Verse 17. Well, actually, prior to that, verse 16 It's not angels he helps, see the distinction, but those that are offspring of Abraham. Those that are by faith. He is among us to function as our priest. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, verse 17, that he might become then a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. He couldn't be a priest without the incarnation. He couldn't mediate us on our behalf in this way without becoming one among us. He does this to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because, and here is this connection of the weakness that Aaron had, that he could recognize the weakness of others because Aaron had been tempted. Aaron failed. And the distinction is mentioned here. (coughs) He suffered, verse 18, when he's tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And the difference is, Christ never failed. That's the difference. See, it's supreme. It's more glorious, Christ can identify. And you can then draw near to the throne of grace after you've blown it a dozen times in a row. He understands that. Have you ever been to that point where you just kept failing and you said, I just should give up. Maybe Christ doesn't want to hear from me now. Maybe I'll come back later. No, he will hear from you right now. And he'll do it in a sympathetic way. He actually understands it to the fullest degree. This, this just boggles my mind to a great degree. But it, it should cause us then to come to him in confidence. This stuff I wouldn't want to tell anybody. But I could come to the throne of grace. And have somebody that truly understands. And will hear. He had to be made Like his brothers in every respect. Calvin comments on this. It's necessary for Christ to become a real man. For as we are very far from God, we stand in a manner before him in the person of our priests, which could not be where he which could not be were he not one of us. Hence that. The Son of God has a nature in common with us, doesn't diminish his dignity, but it commends it the more to us, for he is fitted to reconcile us to God because he is man. Back to our text in verse 6, another categorically excellent a qualification that he exceeds, and found in verse six of chapter five, he says, "You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek." Again, this is Psalm one hundred and ten, which is throughout the whole uh, sermon, and I think it's it's the basis of this exposition. But note the phrase here: "priest forever." So, so the ironic priesthood was temporal. Those who serve didn't always serve. They all died. It was temporary, ultimately, due to their own mortality. Some of them actually failed at their task, and they were sent out. But all of them didn't continue on forever. By contrast, Jesus is far more superior as a high priest because he continues forever. We'll get to this, but I'll read it for you from chapter 7. He upholds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Well, what's so great about that? Consequently, he is able to then save to the uttermost those who draw near, and that's the term that we're looking at from 4.16, drawing near. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he's since he always lives to make intercession for them. I'll say it and before and I'll say it again. That's why you won't lose your salvation, because Christ isn't going to quit. You might. He won't. He ever lives. He continues on forever and ever to make intercession. He is making intercession on your behalf now, and I would I would argue this intercession goes on through eternity. That, that communion you have with Christ, this is why you will be secure. It is sealed certainly by the Holy Spirit, but it is Christ ever living to make intercession. And so the admonition then, if you know who this great high priest is, and is why I'm lifting up those aspects of it, then that should give you the boldness then to draw near to him. At any time, draw near to the throne of grace that you might receive it, that you might receive mercy, and that you might receive help in your time of need. You don't have to understand that perfectly. Come to Christ. He is our eternal high priest. There's never a moment when Jesus will not be interceding on behalf of those who place their faith in him. The second aspect of the priest, not only was he a man among men, which Christ excels, but he's also a compassionate man. And we kind of alluded to that to some degree, but look at verse 2 in our text, chapter 5, verse 2. He's chosen among men, so he can identify with men in what way? Verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Ideally, those that are chosen to be priests, to function in a spiritual guide, leadership, should have compassion for others. It comes about, ultimately, by, and I think the text is clear on this, really, by An introspection into your own heart. If you really know who you are, you can then have compassion on others. A recognition of your true self is a great motivation for compassion. When you recognize how much Christ has forgiven you, and then would there be anyone that you would not be able to forgive? That's what it's based on. So it's a recognition of, first of all, your own wretchedness, as Paul describes in chapter 7 of Romans. A genuine self-assessment is, Oh, wretched man that I am. That doesn't actually fit very well in our cultural concept of self-esteem. And I'm not trying to blow anybody's bubble, but the reality is, we wrestle with a rebellion against God. It's called sin. We, we fail to, to hit the mark of what we're called to do. And so oftentimes people will just move the mark a little bit and say, well, I, I hit that mark. Well, well, you missed this one by a mile, and this is the one that God set up. And so in reality, if you have to then be measured by that, if you would have to be measured by a perfect exemplar, I don't know, Jesus Christ, you would find yourself failing, and you would then express what Paul does here, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? I think that's a very healthy self-examination. Because once that's done, then you can recognize you actually need help, that you, you need mercy, you need grace, and and you know where to get it. Go to Christ. That's the call. And And how will this be revealed? How will you know about this? It is by this very book that you have in front of you. You remember chapter 4 and verse 12? This is why we why, by the way, we read a lot of God's word here. And then when we get a chance to, to, to preach, this, this is what we're going through. Because it has a dynamic power in and of itself that the Holy Spirit will use. He has chosen to, to mediate the glory of Christ through his word. He's chosen to, to use his word to be like a knife to cut to your soul. If you will expose yourself to it. Remember 4.12, if you're in your text, I think I left you off in chapter 5, it's not far. 4.12, for the word of God. The word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, of the joints and the marrow, and discerning the very thoughts and intentions of the heart. I think I know what my thoughts and intentions are, but... I'm confused at times. Why, why, why did I actually think that? Why did I actually do that? Right? Been there? Well, well what's, going to, what's going to get to the heart of the matter? The very word of God. First step of healing and help is admitting that you have a problem. A problem that you can't fix. The priest is compassionate and understanding. Because he's not above, he's not below, he's but among. And the dangers of the priest, by the way, were to then take that responsibility with too much authority and to be too severe. Or on the other hand, a human priest would maybe be too lax, too weak because they recognize their own failures. But we look to Christ, Christ who is incarnate truth in love and speak in that way. We have a high priest who can truly, as I mentioned before, sympathize with our weakness, verse 14 or 15, should I say, because he's been exposed to it in every respect, tempted as we are, and yet what? Without sin. That is, he never failed. So he can understand every aspect of it, but more than that, because he triumphed over it, and that's why you can draw near to him. You can draw near to him because he is the one who has called you to come. And he is the one who understands and he is the one engaging in intercessory prayer for you even now. And the preacher of Hebrews jumped down to verse 7. I would say this parallels with the idea of the priestly sacrifice and compassion as well. In verse 7, it talks about in the days of his flesh, that is when Jesus walked the earth, that they saw him, and he was constantly offering up prayers and supplications. Who offers up prayers and supplications on behalf of the people? It's the priest, the idea. That's what he's getting to. And he does so with loud cries and and tears. Jesus prayed always. You can read through the Gospels and find a number of occasions in which Jesus would slip away privately to pray. We don't have all of the content of what he prayed, but here is an indication that that in his prayers they were done so with great compassion. And it's expressed here in verse 7 as loud cries and tears. This is so the intensity of the high priest who's praying for his people, not in a casual way, but in, in great intensity. Probably, I would say, more than you and I would ever imagine praying. You ever prayed with great intensity for a circumstance, a person, a problem, or whatever it is, and I know you have burdens on your heart that you want to pray for. Can I tell you the one who is praying with the greater intensity? It is our great high priest. That's what he's engaged in. I'll just give you a few occasions, because of time, just to give you an, an idea of it, if you can, you can feel the passion of his prayer, if you will. In Matthew 23, he's in Jerusalem. The leaders have been preaching legalism, ritual, as a way to come, and had been leading the people astray in general. Jesus sees this great city to which great truth has gone. And his cry is this in Matthew 23 37. I'll read it for you. O oh, Jerusalem, O oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together? As a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. This is an indictment on the priests of the people who would not share the very truth of God. And he, he, he weeps for Jerusalem. Judgment comes to them. Your house is left to you desolate. You're not going to see me again till... You say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is, there will be a day of repentance, and there will be a day of reckoning. We preach through John, and I was struck by this passage in John 11. Jesus' incarnate God knows what's going on. This is the death of Lazarus, his friend. And he knows that he's going to raise him from the dead. And ultimately, he knows that he will be with him in a glorified state forever. So that's what God knows. But yet, in his communion with us as brothers, he, he, he has a genuine humanity. I know this can be difficult to understand, but he is 100% man. He sees, he sees Mary. Lazarus' sister, and her brother has died. And both of them are Jesus' friend. And Mary's weeping because her brother died. You ever lose a loved one? It's hard, isn't it? It's, it's a deep set of emotion. In John eleven thirty three, 33, Jesus saw her weeping. And then he saw the Jews that had come with her also weeping. By the way, the Jews are the ones that... He had just indicted. The Jews are the ones who were putting on a hypocritical fake show of weeping. That that was part of their culture. They were just culturally practicing and, and weeping because that's what you do at a funeral. But not Mary. She was deeply moved. She really was weeping from the heart. They were weeping because of their ritual. And so Christ sees all of this, and the text reads this way. He was, he, speaking to Jesus, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This is an expression of his compassion at that time of loss and his consternation against the evil hypocrisy, and both are held at the same time. He responds, where have you laid him? He takes the authority that he has. He knows what he's going to do and they say to him Lord come see and the very shortest verse at least in the English Bible is 1135 if you want to memorize the verse kid you can get this one knocked out right today and Jesus wept that's an understatement but it's a statement you must carry with you If if you're in a great state of emotional distress understand Christ understands and he's he has compassion more than any other priest might have to the point where he can truly grieve as well and for those of you that would rebel against him or others that you might he has compassion it isn't bring him great joy to bring about judgment on you The judgment will come. And these people that are rebelling against God even now have a heart of compassion. They're going to have, yes, speak the very truth to them, but not in a judgmental way, but in a warning of great judgment to come and call them to flee. Probably we know best of all Christ at the cross Another occasion, he was contemplating it in the Garden of Gethsemane. And do you remember his mood at that time? Again, this is a sovereign God who planned before the world began to do this very thing. He had volunteered to come, take on human flesh, knew exactly what it would cost him and what he uh, would uh, bear, it isn't that it was unknown, it's perfectly known. And yet, here he is praying in Gethsemane, Luke twenty-two, forty-four. i read it for you. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat become like great drops of blood falling to the ground. No one has ever cared for you more than Jesus. Do you know him? This is your great high priest. This is the one you can go to at any moment and draw near to him. Back to our text, it says that although he was a son, he he learned obedience by what he suffered. I'll briefly explain that. Essentially, the learning obedience isn't him figuring it out, it's experiencing it. It's actually going through it and coming out victorious. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, actually experienced suffering and pain and death. He knows what it means to be betrayed by a close friend. He knows what it means to to go and tell people the absolute truth and they pick up stones and they want to kill him in fact they ultimately did and the whole culture and society turned against them and you think you have it hard <laughs> you're not the son of glory you're not God incarnate he is a compassionate man thirdly called, and this is quite obvious back to our text and looking back to the priest and the qualification, you'll find it in verse 4 of chapter 5. The priest didn't take this honor on himself. He was called of God. Someone who functions in this kind of office, it's established by God on the behalf of the people. By the way, to usurp some kind of office is, is quite dangerous. You'll find in that same chapter, for time's sake, I'm not going to go through it in detail, but from Leviticus chapter 10, if you want to look it up, <clears throat> here in relationship with Aaron, Nadab and Abihu decided, well, we're going to involve ourselves in some of these functions that God had not called them to do. They took a censer and put it in the fire and laid incense on it and offered it. It was unauthorized fire before the Lord, which God had not commanded them to do and so God gave them some fire. Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Now, that's a great warning and you say, well, that doesn't always happen? Of course not. That's just an example of what is just and right and good. You know why it doesn't always happen? Because God is patient. And he's not willing to anyone to perish. But some will. And it it provides a great warning. You remember even when, when, whether it was a a terrorist attack in, in Luke 13, is it, uh, or, or a natural disaster? You know what Jesus' response to both of those were? Repent, lest you perish. That's really what ultimately matters. Eternity. I'm not suggesting don't fortify, don't help, and, and so forth. He was just saying, you know, that could be a great warning to somebody. To repent and come to Christ. Because a greater judgment is coming. God doesn't immediately respond in judgment to every act of rebellion. If so, there wouldn't be any of us here. He, de- he displays his grace, his mercy, but we certainly shouldn't presume upon it. Because whether the wrath of God is the final judgment ultimately, or it'll it'll come about in Christ who drank the cup of God's wrath to the end. Choose Christ. Come to him. I'll make one more point concerning this calling. Notice back in our text, verse 10, it says he was designated by God a high priest, and note this, after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you're scratching your head about Melchizedek, he will further explain it after admonishing the people a little bit. Uh, We'll get into that. But he'll further explain it in chapters to come. Melchizedek, melech in Hebrew just means king and and tzaddik is is righteousness. So this would be a king of righteousness. It, it, It is a type of Christ in the Old Testament. We'll discuss it in greater detail as the text unfolds. But Jesus fulfills this very qualification as a priest in absolute perfection. He is a chosen man, he is a compassionate man, and he is called by man uh, by God to, to mediate on the behalf of man. It says he is the order of Melchizedek. He's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, being designated by God a a high priest. Aaron and those that followed were priests, but not kings. Melchizedek, as we'll learn, Melech was a king. This is unique. He typifies Christ, who is unique. A, a priestly king, if you will. The, the point is, this high priest that is, is greater than all the priests that came before, and that would come after. Christ, the priestly king, fully man, fully God. Salvation is in him and him alone. Back to verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation then to all who obey him. That is distinctively superior than what any priest could do. Perfect means everything he did was perfectly accomplished. This, This source of eternal salvation means there's no other source but through him. And then this phrase, all who obey him, it's just another way of expressing belief. It isn't that your obedience is going to bring about this eternal salvation. It is through the perfect accomplishment of Jesus Christ. It is those that he would save then have a new disposition and a desire to express and confess that Jesus is Lord. To say that he is Lord means he is my master. I want to follow him. I want to obey him. That is comes out from the heart. It is a new disposition. So you could say obey or believe. It's interchangeable. There, it's inseparable. That's the point. Do you know him? This is your great high priest, perfect in all, accomplished all that is required for salvation, and will will change the heart to bring about an obedience to the faith, not through the flesh, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Father, I I do pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will cause our hearts to truly learn of Christ. Continue to show, by the power of the Spirit, your, your glory. May it be sufficient in our time of need. And ultimately call all of us to draw closer and near to the throne of grace to find the help we need in our time of need. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, you may take a moment now to think on these very things. Privately, where you're at, reflect on the truth of God's word today. Take a moment. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray, and take the very things of Christ and make them known unto us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.
4: So I'll stand and turn to 313 in our hymnals. Take the name of Jesus with you, 313. Father, we're indeed thankful that you have given us your word, where we can see how you reveal yourself to us, Lord. For in your word you say, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Father, we just pray now that you would bless us as we go. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.